Hello, welcome to episode 37 of 10 0. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. How are we doing with your bum foot? <laughs> <laughs> I should have just introduced myself as Hi, I'm Caitlin and I'm crippled. Hi, I'm bum foot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Sheet metal does not feel good going through your foot. No, I can't imagine it does. It feels like a giant paper cut, but it bleeds like a thousand times worse. So, that being said, I have five stitches. doesn't hurt anymore. On your fucking toe, because you tried to cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it didn't get very far. That, that looked pretty gnarly. It was only... You should have seen the towels. I saw the part of it on the floor. Oh, God. <laughs> I had two towels. One your carpets? No. I, mean, <laughs> I saved my carpet because I'm sitting there holding my foot in one hand and I had the other one underneath said hand trying to catch what oh, was honey. <laughs> all the All the while I'm like, hey, give me a towel. Go get your dad. Go wake him up. Ah. <laughs> I'm like freaking the hell out. <laughs> to the point where... Marcus is like, will you stop hyperventilating and sit down? I go, with what? No. <laughs> so Marcus, or Aiden had to get my desk chair and bring it over to me so I could sit. Christ. And then he had to bandage it. Because at this point, I'm like, I'm anemic. That don't feel so good. I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm going to die on my way to the hospital. This is bleeding way more than it's I'm not going to die. I, I, I even looked at Marcus and go, is there an artery in my foot that I just hit? Because why is it bleeding so much? He goes, well, I mean, you need Probably. Stitches, so. You're fine. Yeah. Right Moral of the story is, home. pick shit up off your floor and don't try to walk over. <laughs> Especially if it's something that no longer has a frame. Yeah. In certain spots. Did we learn our lesson? Yes. Okay. Did I have to get a tetanus shot? No, because I'm good on that for another five years. Good to know. Yes. No more rusty nails, I suppose. Um, I dropped a drawer on my foot when I worked in the salon. Yeah. And ripped off my toe nail. So. Ow. Yeah. A bubble wrap, just bubble wrap. <laughs> bubble wrap it all. Right. <laughs> Like, oh, I went the majority of my life without doing too much bodily harm. So, yeah, let's not do that. Next yeah. thing you know, you're going to end up through a goddamn mulcher or something. No. Let's not do that. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll just keep a friend that has a stump grinding service away from me. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Welcome to episode 37. Oh, oh okay. Enough of that. So our true crime fact of the day goes back to 1916. February 11th of 1916 in New York City. This is kind of going to make you a little mad. Um, Emma Goldman was a leader of the women's rights movement and she was arrested for lecturing and distributing materials about birth control. She was accused of violating the Comstock Act of 1873, which made it a federal crime to disseminate contraceptive devices and information through the mail or across state lines. 
She was also an activist for anarchism, free speech, and atheism. She was later convicted for giving out materials on birth control and not overpopulating yeah. the world like we already have. And spent time in jail for her crimes. Oh. Heavy air quotes. Crimes. Yeah. Just saying. Hmm. The shit they were petty about back then. Yeah. Could you imagine how many people we would have in a jail for handing out like pamphlets? A lot. Our jail's already overpopulated as it is. For stupid shit. Well, yeah. Just saying. Most of it's possession of marijuana. Well, there's that. You want to go first or you want me to go first? Um, well, I guess I'll go first because my finger's short. Okay. We need to go to Florida today. Because, you know. Where it's not snowing? Everything. I wish. I wish. <laughs> no, we no, 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 no. You're the one that wanted <laughs> snow, asshole. <laughs> I didn't want the ice that comes before it. <laughs> oh, work is gonna be a shit show. Yeah. Can't wait. <sighs> Continue. Well, we to go to Florida. Okay. This 164 foot tall lighthouse. Mm has been on the edge of Anastasia Island since the mid-1800s. Anastasia Island. Yes. It says on the coast where the Tolomato and Matanzas rivers flow into the Atlantic. Okay. It is one of America's oldest and most haunted structures. Mm-hmm. And it's seen its fair share of history, but it has also left its mark. You know where we're going yet? Mm-mm. This lighthouse isn't exactly what it seems. Once you step foot amongst the coquina walls, black black and white striped base, you can almost sense that something isn't quite right. Maybe it's the fact that it's seen every major event in U.S. history, from the colonization of the Americas all the way up until now. Oh. St. Augustine was the site of the first lighthouse in Florida by the new territorial American government in 1824. The lighthouse was rumored to be placed on the site of an earlier watchtower built by the Spanish as early as the late 16th century. Okay. A map of St. Augustine from 1589 depicted Sir Francis. Fuck it already. I quit. Listen, we're seven minutes into this. I quit. And mine's a long one, so we got... Depicted Sir Francis Drake's attack on the city. There you go. Showed an early wooden watchtower near the structure that was described as a beacon back then. By 1737, Spanish authorities had built a more permanent tower of Coquina from nearby quarries on the island. Mm -hmm. In 1783, the Spanish took control of St. Augustine again. And the lighthouse was improved. Swiss Canadian engineer Joseph Frederick Wallet Des- Despairs marked a Coquina lighthouse on Anastasia Island in 1780. By 1870, beach erosion was threatening the first the first b- built lighthouse. How many did you get it together already? Talk. 
<laughs> I know it's been a minute, but... <laughs> I mean, I had like a week long mini vacation with my crotch goblins. And then I hurt myself. On the last day before you were supposed to come back to like a dum dum. Yeah. Just saying. Continue. It's not like I was able to get out of work. I still had to come. True. <laughs> Construction on a new light tower began in 1871 during Florida's reconstruction period. In the meantime, A new coat of coquina and brush was built to protect the old tower. I think I did that wrong when I was doing notes and I wasn't fully paying attention and I was typing what the TV was saying. <coughs> it's supposed to be like a wall. So like I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so like a wave break almost before yeah. it gets to the tower. A trolley track brought building supplies from the ships at the dock. A new tower was completed in 1874 and put into service with a new first order Fresnel lens. It was lit for the first time in October by keeper William Russell. Russell was the first lighthouse keeper in the new tower and the only keeper to have worked both towers. Facing erosion and a changing coastline, the old tower crashed into the sea in 1880. Okay. The newer tower, what we now know as the St. Augustine Lighthouse, was built beforehand. Mm -hmm. Today, the Fallen Tower ruins are a submerged archaeological site. Cool. I thought it was pretty cool. For 20 years, the site was manned by headkeeper William... Harn of Philadelphia. Major Harn was a Union war hero. Sorry. Who had commanded his own battery at the Battle of Gettysburg. With his wife, Kate, he had six daughters. The family was known for serving lemonade out of out on the porches of the keeper's house, which was constructed as a Victorian duplex. Sounds interesting. Yeah. I don't know how you'd make a duplex Victorian. I mean, I'm sure it happened. But I don't know. I'm kind of, like, curious. On August 31st of 1886, the Charleston earthquake caused the tower to sway violently, according to the <clears throat> keeper's log, but there was no recorded damage. In 1885, after many experiments with different types of oils, the lamp was converted oh. from lard oil to kerosene in the older town. Oh. Not what I was expecting. No, not at all. Um, during World War II, Coast Guard men and women trained in St. Augustine and used the lighthouse as a lookout post for enemy ships and submarines, which frequented the coastline. I know it's kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. It's fine. In 1907, Indoor reached the light station, followed by electricity in the keeper's quarters in 1925. The light itself was electrified in 1936 and automated in 1955. Okay. As the light was automated, positions for the three keepers slowly dwindled down to like two and then one. 
no longer housing lighthouse families by the 1960s. The keeper's house was rented to local residents. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it was declared surplus, and St. John's County brought, bought it in 1970. In that year, the house suffered a desert, devastating fire at the hands of an unknown arsonist. Oh, that's rude. Right. In 1980, a small group of women signed a 99-year lease with the county for the keeper's house and the surrounding grounds and began restoring the grounds. The league also signed a 30-year lease with the Coast Guard in efforts to restore the lighthouse itself. The lighthouse was subsequently placed on the National Register of Historical Places in 1981. Today, the St. Augustine Light Station consists of the 164-foot 1874 tower, the 1876 Keeper's House, two summer kitchens that were added in 1866, a 1941 U.S. Coast Guard barracks, and a 1936 garage that was home to a Jeep repair facility during World War II. To a Jeep repair facility? Yes. Jeremy would be into that. (laughs) Right. It's also a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration weather station. All right. I don't think I could ever say that again nope. without messing it up. Probably not. <clears throat> In 1994, the Lighthouse Museum opened to the public. The St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum aims to preserve local maritime history, keep alive the story of the nation's oldest port, and connect young people to marine science. The museum board and staff also work to help save other lighthouses in Florida and across the nation, coordinating efforts with several federal agencies and volunteer groups such as the Florida Lighthouse Association. The lighthouse employs close to 50 individuals and is visited annually by over 200,000 people, including 54,000 school-aged children. All right. I would like to go, but you know. I want to go, but you know, as well as I do, if we go to Florida and we don't go visit certain people, that's where Marcus's friend David lives with his uh, person. Yeah? Yeah. When her and David were, like, separated, but not separated. We were on a break. (laughs) She tried talking to Marcus. Oh. So, I see her, it's, like, on site. Like, no. You can get fucked. Um, well, then. Yeah. Anyway. That escalated quickly. Like all age-old structures <laughs> we have come to cover <laughs> in our podcast, this location has its fair share of ghost stories. For instance, it may be tempting to disregard the lingering odor of cigars, despite the site being smoke-free. But for anyone who has ever smelled it, or has even seen the too tall shadowy figure that often accompanies it, they will tell you the sense that the sense of fear and foreboding in the air lingers long after the cigar has faded away. Hmm. Like, locals and lighthouse employees refer to this specter as the man, and he is also seen, often seen, dressed in a blue jacket and mariner's cap, walking his route up and down the spiral staircase or looking down from the catwalk above. Because of his tall, thin frame, some believe he is the ghost of William Russell, a protective, dutiful lighthouse keeper from the 1850s, while others point to Joseph 
Andrew, who fell from the top of the scaffolding in 1859 while putting on a fresh coat of paint. Oh, it's unfortunate. Regardless of who the man is, it's clear that his shit never ended. I'd be pissed right? if I died at work and I kept working after I'm dead. I swear to God, in our line of work, absolutely I, fucking not. I'd be fucking pissed. In 1872, the lighthouse was under construction, overseen by a man named Hezekiah Pity, who stayed on the island with his wife and two daughters while the project was underway. One afternoon, while Pity's daughter and a few of their friends were playing near the lighthouse, tragedy struck and the island was changed forever. There was a rail cart that the construction crew used to transport supplies from the pier to the lighthouse. It had become a part of the girls' favorite game, pretending they were Spanish pirates moving their hoarded treasure to a secret location. <clears throat> Only one day, while rolling near the cliff's edge, the rail cart came off its tracks sending the young girls down into the, bottom, into the water below. Oh. Some of them were rescued in time, but unfortunately, both of Mr. Pity's daughters were lost to the sea. If anything can be said, it's that children now get to play long after dark. We know because the employees of the St. Augustine Lighthouse still hear their giggles ringing out in the night. And have been known to find the dirty child-sized footprints on the floors the next morning. Mm -mm. If I heard a kid laughing and And my kids were not with me, I would be freaking the fuck out. And then, last but not least, Maria de los Dolores. Dolores. I slept through Spanish class, so don't hate me. (laughs) <laughs> stands out for more reasons than just her recent ghostly sighting. In 1859, she became the first woman to serve in the U.S. Coast Guard, but she also became the first Hispanic-American woman to command a federal shore installation, a.k.a. the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Hey, there you go. Her appointment came after her husband, the form- yeah. formerly mentioned caretaker, Joseph Andrew, mm-hmm. met his fatal end. Maria was heartbroken, left on Anastasia Island to follow in the very same footsteps that her husband had once walked, and was even known to stand at the edge of the catwalk, looking down to where her husband's body had once laid broken. She can still be found there on occasion, leaning over the railing and imagining what those last few seconds of Joseph's life had been like. If I look up a set of spiral stairs, which is the first problem, There's the stairs themselves, because I would eat shit and fall all the way down. I look up and see something looking down at me when there's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That would be a problem, friends. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. got a big one for you. Are you ready? Yes. Doing the Unabomber. Ah, Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. Yeah. What was that for? He's one of my favorites. Like, and I say that because, you know, I am who I am, 
<laughs> You're not one of those people that writes little to serial killers, are you? No. No. Not at all. Absolutely not. So, Theodore John Kaczynski was born May 22nd of 1942 in Chicago. When reflecting upon their family life, Ted's parents told his other Yother? Yother. I tried Yother. to combine younger and brother. Here we go. <laughs> younger <laughs> brother, David. <laughs> that he had been a happy baby until he had a severe case of the hives. They went on to say that he was put in the hospital in isolation with limited contact with anyone, after which he showed little emotion for months. Oh. Can't say I blame him. Welcome oh. to COVID. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ted's mother, Wanda, said that she once showed him a baby picture of himself when he was at the hospital, and doctors were holding him down to examine his hives, and he recoiled at the picture. Can't say I blame him. According to Wanda, showed sympathy for animals in cages or helpless animals, which she, she said stemmed from his hospital isolation. Also can't blame him. Right. From the first to fourth grade, Ted attended Sherman Elementary in Chicago. Administrators at the school, God bless America, described him as a healthy and well adjusted. At least that I needed to get it together. At least <laughs> I waited a couple minutes. Jeez. Healthy and well adjusted child. In 1952, they relocated to Evergreen Park, and he was transferred to Evergreen Park Central Junior High School. Okay. After testing with an IQ of 167, he skipped the sixth grade. Ted would later go on to say that this was a major turning point in his life. Before he skipped sixth grade, he socialized with children that were his age, and yet he had become a leader among those children. He said after skipping, it, he felt that he did not fit in with the older children who often bullied him. Sure. Neighbors of the family would later describe the family as civic-minded folks, recalling that the parents sacrificed whatever they could for their children. Both Ted and his other brother, I did it again, younger brother David, were very smart, but Ted was even more so. Okay. So, high school. He attended Evergreen Park Community High School, where he excelled academically. He played the trombone and marching band and was a member of the Mathematics, Biology, Coin, and German clubs. In 1996, a former classmate recalled he has never really seen as a person. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak. Well, I mean, he's not wrong. No. He's, Ted's a very smart man. Mm -hmm. Just used it in absolutely the wrong way. Right. During his high school career, Ted became very interested in mathematics and will often spend hours with his nose in a book. He became friends with a group of boys that thought the same way that he did, and they were dubbed the briefcase boys, as they all carried briefcases. Yeah. Through his... What the hell happened there? Throughout high school, Ted was always at the top of his class, and he skipped the 11th grade by attending summer school and graduated at age 15. Yep. Moving on to, uh, moving on to his Harvard career. Mm -hmm. In 1958, Ted received a scholarship to Harvard and began attending classes at 16. 16 at Harvard. Yep. During his first year, he lived at 8 Prescott Street, which was a house designed for the youngest and most precious incoming students in a small, intimate living space. Itty-bitty living space. Itty-bitty. <laughs> <clears throat> 
For the next three years, Ted lived at Elliot House. His roommates described him as a very intelligent but socially reserved person. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in math from Harvard in 1962, graduating with a GPA of 3.12. Okay. Here comes the smart man. Yes. In his second year at Harvard, Ted participated in a study that was described as, quote, purposefully brutalizing psychological experiment led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. This is where shit starts getting funky. That doesn't shock me at all. Subjects were told to, they would debate personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. Okay? Okay. These essays were then given to an anonymous individual who would confront and belittle the subject in what Murray called, quote, vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attack, which used the essays as ammunitions. Mm. Electrodes were hooked up to the students to monitor their reactions. These encounters were filmed, and the subject's expressions of anger and rage were then played back to them repeatedly. Ew. Hmm. This ex- experiment lasted for three years, and someone verbally berated him weekly mm. over his essays. Okay. First off, having to write an essay weekly. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's my first problem. Secondly, someone picking apart my essay. Ted's lawyers would later blame his hostility towards mind control techniques due to his participation. God bless America. Participation. (laughs) Don't look at me like that. Hey. I'm allowed to lie. Some sources have said that Murray's experiments were part of Project MKUltra and the CIA's research on mind control. That wouldn't shock me. At all. We all know how I feel about their mind control bullshit. I'm surprised you haven't done MKUltra yet. <sighs> it's there. I'm just hanging out? Yep. I, I'm trying not to get us, you know, watched by the, the CIA. Well, your first one already had us watched because <clears throat> somebody in D.C. listens to us. So yeah, thanks for that. So on to his math career, I guess. In 1962, Ted at the University of Michigan, where he earned his master's in 1964 and his doctoral degree in mathematics in 1967. Michigan was not Ted's first choice, however. He also applied to the University of California in Berkeley and the University of Chicago, both of which accepted him but did not offer him a teaching position or financial aid, which was a big deal. Michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,310 and a teaching position as well. At Michigan, Ted specialized in complex analysis, specifically geometric function theory. Professor Peter Duran described him as an unusual person. He said he was not like the other graduate students. He was much more focused about his work, and he had a drive to discover mathematical truth. So Ted kind of went through this... I don't want to say transformation because he didn't go through with it. Um, In 1966, Ted experienced intense sexual urges to become a woman and decided to undergo the gender reassignment surgery. Yes. He had arranged to meet with a psychiatrist, but changed his mind in the waiting room and left without giving a reason. After leaving, he was angry. He considered killing the psychiatrist and other people that he hated. Ted would later describe this episode as a major turning point in his life. 
quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do. And I felt humiliated and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. Okay. <laughs> in 1967, Ted's dissertation, Boundary Functions, landed on the Summer B. Myers Prize for Michigan's Best Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. In late 1967, Ted became an acting assistant professor at the University of California in Berkeley, where he taught math. By September 1968, he had been appointed assistant professor. His teaching evaluation suggested that he was not well-liked by his students. He seemed uncomfortable teaching and taught straight from the textbook, often refusing to answer questions. On June 30th of 1969, without any explanation, he resigned. Oh. You got the job you wanted at the place you wanted, and then you quit. Well, I mean, if it's any consolation, look at me. Well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I like my job. After resigning his petite, God bless America, teaching position at Berkeley, Ted moved back. <laughs> fuck up. Ted moved back home with his parents in Lombard, Illinois. Not even anywhere remotely close to where you were trying to go with that. Nope. My headline for this section is moving to Montana, and then I go to Lombard. So in 1971, Ted moved to a remote cabin that he built himself just outside of Lincoln, Montana. He lived a simple life with little money and without electricity or running water, and jobs while still receiving heavy financial help from his family. Ted's goal was to become self-sufficient. He used an old bicycle to get to town and volunteered at the local library so he could often be found there reading classics in their original language, which is kind of scary. Um, in 1990, a census taker described the cabin as containing a bed, two chairs, storage trunks, a gas stove, and lots of books. Oh. Starting in 1975, Ted committed arson and set booby traps against residences that were close to his cabin. Well, <clears throat> I, I can't say I blame the guy. He liked being secluded. Yeah. Like, I'm not mad at him. In an interview after his arrest, he recalled being shocked on a hike to one of his favorite wild spots. It's kind of a rolling country, not flat, and when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs, and then there was even a waterfall. It's about a two-day hike from my cabin, and that was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some space. I went back to that plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on, I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess. Ted's father came to visit multiple times while he was in Montana. Um, he was often impressed by his son's wilderness skills. His father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in 1990, and they had a family meeting held without Ted later that year to map out what was next. And in October of 1990, Ted's father committed suicide. So on to the bombings. Okay. Between 1978 and 1995, Ted mailed or hand delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three people and injured 23. There were 16 bombings that were attributed to him. There were several copycats. The actual devices varied throughout the years. Many were inscribed with the letters FC, 
which Ted later said stood for Freedom Club. He purposefully mis left misleading clues and took extreme measures to make sure that he left no fingerprints. I mean... Smart. Very smart. So the first bombing was May 25th of 1978. A passerby found a package that was addressed and stamped in a parking lot at the University of Illinois in Chicago. The package was returned to the person listed on the return address, which was a Northwestern professor named Buckley Christ. He did not recognize the package and called campus security, and the package exploded, putting in, injured the security officer. Ooh. May 9th of 1979. <clears throat> Again, we're at Northwestern. A graduate student is injured when he opened a box that looked like a present. It had been left in a room used by graduate students. Which means, it, to me, that says, A, <clears throat> you're just opening random boxes in a room right. that aren't addressed to you. Yeah. So not that there should have been a bomb there, but it's kind of your own damn fault. Yeah, pretty much. On November 15th of 1979, American Airlines Flight 444, flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C., fills with smoke after a bomb detonates in the luggage area compartment. Ooh. The plane lands safely since the bomb didn't work as it was intended. Several passengers suffered from smoke inhalation, but there were no serious injuries reported. 10th of 1980, United Airlines President Percy Woods is injured when he opened a package holding a bomb encased in a book called Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. Oh. October 8th of 1981, a bomb wrapped in brown paper and tied up with string is discovered in the hallway of a building at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. The bomb is the bomb. Bomb is safely detonated without causing any injury. May 5th of 1982, a bomb was sent to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt. The bomb injures his secretary after she opened it in his office. July 2nd of 1982, a package bomb is left in the break room of Quarry Hall at the University of California and explodes and injures an engineering professor. Oh. Oh, May 15th of 1985, we're still at the University of California. Another bomb was placed in Quarry Hall and it injured an engineering student. June 13th of 1985, a suspicious package was sent to Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington. The bomb was safely detonated, but most of the forensic evidence was lost. November 15th of 1985, University of Michigan professor and his assistant were injured when they opened a package containing a three-ring binder that had a bomb. The bomb included a letter asking the professor to review a student's master thesis. Oh. Shit, hey. That's what that is. Yeah. December 11th of 1985, a bomb was left in the parking lot of a Sacramento computer store and killed the store's owner. So that was his first death out of all of these. February 20th of 1987, another bomb left in the parking lot of a Salt Lake City computer store severely injured the son of the store's owner. The store employee saw a man leave the bomb and that witness account helped a sketch artist complete a composite sketch of Ted. Mm -hmm. June 22nd of 1983, a geneticist at the University of California is injured after opening a package that exploded in his kitchen. Okay. June 24th of 1993, a prominent computer scientist from Yale lost several fingers to a mailed bomb. That had to be like... No, sir. Like your hands are your job. Yeah. So, like, when I was cutting hair. Yeah. Uh, but, but December 19th of 1994, 
an advertising executive was killed by a package bomb that was sent to his New Jersey home. So number two, April 24th of 1995, a mailed bomb killed the president of the California Forestry Association in his Sacramento office. So that's all of our bombings. In so Ted wrote a manifesto. Mm Um, in 1995, he mailed several letters to the media outlets outlining his goals and demanding that a major newspaper print his 35,000-word essay called Industrial Society and Its Future. He said that he would, quote, desist from terrorism if this demand was met. Oh. The attorney general and FBI director debated if this essay should be released, rightfully so. But it was deemed a good idea to see if a reader could figure out who the writer was. So the, I'm assuming it's the editor of Penthouse, (laughs) volunteered to publish it. But Ted decided that this was a less respectable outlet than the Times. I would never guess that. Right. (laughs) So. We're going to put something in Penthouse and see how that works out. It'll be the centerfold of that. The Washington Post published the essay on September 19th of 1995. Ted used a typewriter to write his manuscript, capitalizing entire words for emphasis in lieu of italics. He always referred to himself as a we or the FC thing, though there is no evidence he worked with anyone else. The essay begins with, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. He goes on about technology and that it has had a destabilizing effect on society, making it unfulfilling and has caused widespread psychological suffering. Places he's not wrong. wrong. So on to the investigation. Mm -hmm. In 1979, an FBI-led task force that included 125 agents from the FBI, ATF, and the U.S. Postal Service was formed. That force grew to more than 150 full-time personnel. In 1980, Chief John Douglas with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit issued a psychological profile of the unidentified bomber. He was the chief of that group that was formed. It described the offender as a man with above average intelligence, check, and connected to academia, check. This profile was dropped, however, in 1983. FBI analysts developed an alternative theory that concentrated on the physical evidence that was recovered in the bomb fragments. In this profile, the suspect was derived as a blue-collar airplane mechanic. Oh. So, wrong. (laughs) The Unibomb Task Force set up a hotline to take calls related to the investigation with a $1 million reward for anyone who could provide information leading to an arrest. Before the publication of Ted's manifesto, his brother David was encouraged by his wife to follow up on suspicions that Ted was the Unabomber. David obviously didn't want to believe that his brother was a Unabomber. Right. But he took the likelihood more seriously after reading the manifesto a week after it was published. David searched through old family papers and found letters dating to the 1970s that Ted had sent to newspapers to protest the abuses of technology mm-hmm. using phrasing similar to that in the manifesto. Well. Ding, ding. <laughs> if, if it... You're not wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying it. 
-hmm. After the publication of the manifesto, the FBI received the tips in response to its offer of a reward. While the FBI reviewed leads, David hired a private investigator named Susan Swanson in Chicago to investigate Ted's activities. He then hired D.C. attorney Tony Biscagli, I think, to organize any evidence that had been gathered by Susan and to contact the FBI. In early 1996, an investigator working with, with Biscagli, that's going to mess me up the whole time I have to say that name, <laughs> contact former FBI hostage negotiator Clinton Van Zandt. He was asked to compare the manifesto to typewritten copies of handwritten letters David had received from his brother. Van Zandt's initial analysis determined that there was more than a 60% chance that the same person wrote both the manifesto and the letters. In February of 1996, Biscegli gave a copy of the manifesto to Molly Flynn, who worked at the FBI. She forwarded the essay to the San Francisco-based task force. FBI profiler James Fitzgerald recognized the similarities in the writing and determined that the author of the letters and manifesto were almost definitely the same person and a search warrant was applied for with that information. Well, <clears throat> that could technically all be circumstantial, though. Yeah. Because you can't always go based off of a profile. No, but if somebody's writing style <clears throat> I mean, if the matches almost similar, identically. But... In today's day and age, it'd be almost impossible to 110%. David tried to remain anonymous throughout all this, quickly identified. Within a few days, an FBI agent team was sent to interview David and his wife with their attorney in Washington, D.C. After this meeting, David provided more letters and allowed the task force to use the letters and postmarked envelopes to add more detail to their timeline of Ted's activities. In early 1996, David did not want Ted to know that he was the one that turned him in. However, CBS News, being the jagaloons that they are, ratted him out. Of course they did. So the arrest. April 3rd, 1996, Ted Kaczynski is arrested at his cabin in Minnesota. A search of the cabin revealed bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments, description of the Unabomber, Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready to be mailed. At this point in history, this was the most expensive investigation in history coming in at $50 million in 1996. Yikes. After his capture, theories emerged that Ted might also be the Zodiac. Ted lived in San Francisco from 1967 to 1969. Both men were highly intelligent with an interest in bombs and codes. Both wrote letters to newspapers demanding Wait, the wait, 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 wait. Hold up. The Zodiac never once used a bomb. It was never once hinted True. the fact that he had any type of inkling towards bombs. I'm just going with what my research said. <sighs> Uh, you made me lose my goddamn place. My bad. Sorry. Zodiac's like one of my favorites. I, they're all your damn favorites. I know. <laughs> Both wrote letters to newspapers demanding the publication of their works with the threat of continued violence if the demand was not met. 
Ted's whereabouts could not be confirmed for all of the killings. I mean, I guess it's possible. It could be. Doubtful. Highly. Those sketches look nothing alike. No. At all. These assholes are going to send me down the fucking rabbit hole. <laughs> Guess I can prove them wrong. Christ. <clears throat> On to the trial. <clears throat> that was karma right there. My, my slide got stuck to the bottom of my sock. That was karma. Oh, and I like moved and I was too close to the table and I hit my foot. <sighs> you okay? Yeah. I'm good. June 1996, a federal grand jury indicted Ted on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs. Only 10 counts, though. 16 of those were confirmed his. Well, that's just like one of the serial killers I'm going to cover within the next few weeks. Yeah. He killed how many people? A lot. He was only found guilty on 10 counts of murder. Yeah. So... Ted's lawyers, that was, they were headed by Montana federal public defenders, Michael Donahue and Judy Clark, attempted to enter an insanity plea to avoid the death penalty. Ted rejected this. He's obviously not insane. January 8th of 1998, Ted asked to dismiss his lawyers and hire Tony Sarah as his counsel. Sarah agreed to not use the insanity defense and instead promised to base a defense on Ted's anti-technology views. Well, technically, back then... It would be looked at almost as if he was a conspiracy theorist. And in turn, insane. True. January 9th of 1998, Ted attempted suicide due to his request being denied. <sighs> Sally Johnson. He... Made me feel old. I was. I was eight. Five. I was eight. <laughs> Sally Johnson, the psychiatrist that examined Ted, concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. In his 2010 book, Ted said that the two prison psychologists who visited him frequently told him that they saw no indication that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, and the diagnosis was ridiculous and a political diagnosis. Probably was. Yep. January 21st of 1998, Ted was declared competent to stand trial by federal prison psychologists. As he stand trial, the prosecutor sought the death penalty. On January 22, 1998, Ted pled guilty to all charges, accepting life in prison without the possibility of parole. He later tried to withdraw his plea, arguing it was involuntary as he had been coerced to plead guilty by the judge. Judge Garland Burrell Jr. denied his request, and the Court of Appeals upheld that decision. In 2006, Burrell ordered that items from Ted's cabin were to be sold on an internet auction. Obviously, all the bomb-making materials were excluded. The proceeds went toward the $15 million in restitution that Burrell had awarded Ted's victims. So, $15 million in 2006. Just saying. Well, now, with who's currently in the White House and how inflation keeps going up, you're looking at probably like, um, it was $15 million? You're looking at probably like... Probably not wrong. So on to his incarceration movements. Ted was serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at ADX Florence, 
a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. During his stay there, Ted befriended Ramsey Yusuf and Timothy McVeigh. Shocker. Right. In 2012, Ted responded to the Harvard Alumni Association's directory inquiry for the 50th reunion of the class of 1962. <laughs> He listed his occupation as prisoner and his eight it wasn't wrong. and his eight life sentences as awards. <laughs> On December fourteenth, twenty twenty one, seventy nine year old Ted was transferred to the Federal Medical Center in North Carolina for health reasons. And that's the last known whereabouts that we have. So little odds and ends here. In October 2005, Ted offered to donate two rare books to the Melville Herskovitz Library of African Studies at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. The library rejected his offer, saying that it already had the books. Oh. And the Labadee Collection, part of the University of Michigan Special Collections Library, houses Ted's correspondence with over 400 people since his arrest, including replies, legal documents, publications, and clippings. His writings are among the most popular selections at the library. And the identity of most correspondents will remain sealed until 2049. Ooh. That concerns me a little bit. Yes, I know. It kind of makes you wonder what's in the correspondence. Well, that is the story of Ted Kaczynski. Yay! Yeah. Yeah. Like, you good? <laughs> the fact that they're trying to say that Ted could be the Unabomber is like bugging me. And the Ted could be the Unabomber? Unabomber. <laughs> he could be the Zodiac. I mean, it's possible. It's unlikely. Like, they have clear sketches of what the Zodiac looked like. Yeah. They have all this evidence. I don't think Ted would have been dumb enough to use a cipher. And I I say dumb enough, and that's not really what I mean. I don't see. I don't see him taking the time to make a cipher. Taking the time to do it because with him being as calculated as he was with the bombings, everything was still rushed. Yeah. And he was doing it for the attention. Zodiac wasn't doing it for the attention in in that sense. Yeah. Yes, he wanted the attention, but he was doing it in a cryptic way. Mm-hmm. Ted was not. Yeah. That's interesting. Why change motives? To throw people off. You do not see serial killers very often switch their motive. Yeah. It's always the same. Their calling cards are always the same. You're not wrong. Why change? Throw people off. But how often does that Because normally, the moment that they slip up and they do something slightly off is the moment they fuck up and they get caught. It's also somebody with 167 point IQ. Yeah. Which means that if they were the same person, he did this because he wanted to be caught. But I don't see them being the same person. I don't think so. Those sketches look nothing <clears throat> alike at all. 
I mean, there is always plastic surgery, but... Not in that short of a time frame. No, there's no way. There's just... Especially in the 60s. And with how young he was. Yeah. He would have been... 22? Yeah. At the youngest. And Zodiac is... Was a male in his, what, mid to late 20s? Early 30s? I can't remember. I can't either. And I am not about to go diving into Google because that will start an entire thing that I do not want to get into right now. And I'm not re-listening to that episode because that was a two-hour long episode. I do not want to to go back down that rabbit hole at the moment. No. I will save that for, like, one of our short weeks where we don't have, like, anything to do (laughs) at work. And I will just sit there one night and just play around on rabbit hole it up yeah I'll, I'll get lost in the rabbit hole it's fine but tonight is not that night i agree Ugh. you can find us on facebook at 10 zero true crime and paranormal stories from behind the headset <laughs> we've been doing this for <laughs> almost a year <laughs> I'm not normally the one that does that. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. They're both 10-0 podcast. Um, Instagram is spelled out. Twitter is not. Um, If you're feeling generous, we have a Patreon with four different levels. I cannot talk anymore. I freaking quit. Um, Four levels of goodies. Yeah. Stickers, um, a shout out on the podcast, um, our big decal, or all the above. Um, if you also wouldn't mind leaving us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on, we would really, 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 really like that. That'd be great. Yes. Um, so we can start reaching more people. You can send us an email at 10zeropodcast at gmail.com for any case suggestions you might have. Or if you want to send us listener stories. Yes. Because we want to start doing listener stories at least once a month. Yes. Um, Our giveaway, if we reach 250 on, what was it, Instagram? Facebook and Instagram for a total of 500. Yes. We will be doing a giveaway for a customizable, well, not really customizable. You can have your name on it. (laughs) Personalized. Tumblr with our logo and possibly maybe a sticker or some two stickers and stuff. Um, if we get seven fifty, so two hundred fifty followers on all of our platforms, we're going to yeah. do a giveaway for our cool bleach tie dyed hoodie with our decal on it. And there's only two in existence right now. I even turned my mom down because my mom wanted one. Yeah. And if anyone knows my relationship with my mom, I would do anything for that woman. And I basically told her that the only way for her to get one is to help us get to our follower count. So, if I'm willing to tell my mom that. Sorry, mom. (laughs) These hoodies are flipping worth it. Yes. So. With that, stay safe and try not to become the next 10-0.